0: You're listening to Real Atheology, a podcast that considers contemporary philosophy of religion from a naturalist or atheist perspective. Welcome to A Theology. My name is Justin, and with me today is philosopher Dr. Michael Hemmingson. Dr. Michael Hemmingson, thanks so much for coming on the show.
1: Oh, thank you for inviting me. Um,
0: so we should probably begin uh, with, I guess, you telling us a little bit about yourself. Uh, where do you teach? Uh, what are your general areas of philosophical research?
1: Sure. Um, so currently, I am at uh, Donghai University, which is in Taichung, Taiwan. Um, so I'm teaching in the International College at the moment, um, I basically I teach philosophy courses there to mostly non-majors. Um, before before this I was at the University of Guam, uh, the U.S. territory. Um, and then prior to that uh, I was in New Zealand and before that studied in Canada at McMaster University.
0: I guess rewinding even further back, what kind of contributes to your general interest in philosophy? <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think I think my case is probably pretty typical. You know, I just was always interested in philosophical kinds of questions, even if I didn't know that's what they, they were at the time. Um, you know, I, I got to university. I wasn't totally sure what I wanted to study, took classes in different subjects and just found that the philosophy courses really spoke to me. They just felt really natural to me, you know, the kinds of questions they were asking, the, uh, the approaches they were taking just seemed like just obvious in a way, you know, just seemed like um, the kind of thing that I was interested in doing. And so I haven't looked back from there,
0: really. Talking about the paper that we're going to be discussing today um, within philosophy of religion, uh, do you yourself hold any what you would call religious beliefs?
1: Well, I, you know, usually I'm, I'm pretty coy about my own views. Um, sure. It may seem a little bit odd to, to say it, um, but I'm not sure that, you know, religious beliefs or, or lack of religious beliefs necessarily has a lot to do with doing the philosophy of religion. Um, you know, for, for myself, I'm not really persuaded by any of the philosophical arguments for the mm-hmm. existence of God. Um, and if that's the case, then, you know, belief in God Really has to be a personal matter, right? Sure. And as a personal matter, you know, I'm not sure how much of a role it can play in in doing philosophy, right? Because philosophy involves kind of public reasoning. It involves relying on on premises that, at least in principle, you can you can persuade others of. Um, and I'm I'm not sure that you know a personal uh, belief in God is that kind of premise, if you know what I okay. mean.
0: Yeah, um, fair enough.
1: So I, I think in that sense, I'm not sure religious belief really comes into it much. Um, of course, I think, you know, to do philosophy of religion, you have to take seriously both the idea that there could be a God, right, and that there may not be a God. I think if you're not willing to take both of those views seriously, I'm not sure there's much of a point in, in discussing these kinds of questions. Um and I think in saying that, too, there are certainly things that I don't really give much credence to. Um, so, for example, I, I can't really make sense of the idea of the devil, for example, or hell. Mm. Uh, so really, as soon as these things come up in a discussion, um, I more or less check out. I'm just, you know, there's, I've got nothing to, to say. I'm not really interested. Um, but I think what I take to be the more central ideas of of, you know, theistic belief, existence of God and so on, um, you know, I, I take more seriously. I'm willing to willing to to credit.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I wanted to bring you on um, to discuss your recent paper, soul making and social progress. Um, I guess before we dive into that paper, could you give kind of a brief summary of your central point in that paper?
1: Sure. Yeah. So so very briefly, um, I say in this paper that I think if you want to defend the current distribution and current quantity of evil in the world by claiming that it's necessary to achieve some kind of higher good, um, then you're, you're kind of committed to the view that this world, this distribution, this amount of evil is ideal. And as a result of that, any kind of change that that we might want to make that, and that we might want to describe as, as social progress, by that Lights uh, makes the world actually worse off. So any kind of social progress is kind of ruled out by this this view.
0: The paper is in response to, as you mentioned, the soul-making theodicy uh, by John Hick. Uh, who was John Hick, and, and what is the soul-making theodicy? What's it in response to?
1: Yeah, so um, you know, Hick was a very well-regarded um, philosopher of, of, of religion and a, and a theologian. Um, you know, someone I uh, have a lot of respect for. Um, which I guess is why I'm interested enough in what he has to say to discuss it, even if I'm saying I think he's wrong. Um, uh, the soul-making theodicy is a response that Hick offered to the problem of evil. Right? And the problem of evil is basically this. You know, if God is all-knowing, uh, then God knows about all, all the evil that exists um, or could exist. Um, if he's all-powerful, he has the ability, the power, to put a stop to all of those instances of evil. And if he's perfectly good, then necessarily he's going to try to put a stop to to that evil. Um, and if this, is the, if this is the case, then it seems on the face of it that there shouldn't be any evil in the world. You know, God knows about all the evil, wants to stop the evil, and can stop the evil so why why is it still around why does it exist um and so i think yeah yeah the you know the really important thing to note is the absolute nature of of these qualities right omniscience omnipotence and uh right because there's a huge difference between being extremely powerful you know being like a zeus uh, and being able to do literally anything being a, a theistic god so i think you know for a for a an absolute being, an omnipotent being, really no action is is any more or less costly than any other action. Right? It's just as easy for an, an omnipotent God to nudge a pebble um, than it is to to create a universe out of nothing or to alter the the laws of nature. Right? When you're when you're infinite, I think the kind of distinctions like easy versus difficult they just disappear. Um, so again, you know, the problem is basically saying, look, given a being like that, a being who could easily stop all of this evil and wants to stop all of this evil, presumably, um, uh, how could there possibly be evil in the world? Um, so the idea is there's sort of only three three options here. First is you can drop one of the omni-characteristics of God. So you can say God is either not omnipotent or or not omniscient or not be benevolent, um, which I, you know, I don't think is desirable from either a, a doctrinal or, or a philosophical point of view, and least to some kind of troubling ideas. And, you know, so for example, we can imagine an, an all-powerful, all-knowing God who is not all good, and so is perfectly happy to allow gratuitous evils, or even to really just not really care much about about what happens to, to human beings, which I think is a kind of terrifying idea. Um, or alternatively, we need to find some kind of explanation for um, how the existence of evil is consistent with the existence of a of a theistic God with these qualities. Or finally, we can conclude on the basis of this argument that that uh, a theistic God cannot exist. Um, so Hicks soul-making um, theodicy is a response of the second kind. It's basically saying, um, here is an explanation for how evils the existence of evil is consistent with the existence of a theistic God. And he argues that the existence of evil is necessary in order to allow us to develop um, our moral characters. right He thinks if there's no evil to, to overcome, there's no possibility of becoming the kind of person um, who fights against evil or opposes evil, right? Um, so he thinks there are certain virtues that require evils for us to overcome for their development in the first place. And he thinks that these virtues are so valuable that their existence outweighs the existence of the evils that are necessary to bring them about. Right? So the idea would be the best possible world is a world where evil exists plus these virtues exist, rather than a world that has no evil, but also no virtue of this kind, right? And if that's the case, then he thinks this is an explanation for why a perfect God would allow evils to exist because a world with those evils is the the best possible world.
0: Um, So you write that the, the most obvious objection to this schema, however, is that there does not seem to be any clear reason why God should create humans as initially imperfect rather than creating them as perfect from the start. Um, could you kind of develop that further for us?
1: Sure, yeah. I mean, the idea here is, uh, it seems that there should be a cost-free way of bringing about those virtues. right? Because what, what are virtues, Virtues, right? They're, they're just stable qualities of character. Um, so an all-powerful God, presumably, could just, you know, snap his metaphorical fingers and bring into existence beings with all the qualities of character that are desirable right um you know what are angels if not that kind of being right. um, and so it still seems that we lack an explanation for why evils exist you know if god could have just snapped his fingers and brought into existence beings with you know possessing of all of these virtues then god could have created a world with no evil but also with all the virtues that we, that we desire, right? But he didn't do that. So again, the question is why not? Uh,
0: so in response to the problem that you raise, uh, John Hick um, gives uh, two considerations that he views as justifying a perfect God and creating humans as imperfect. Uh, his first consider- consideration is that we must be created spiritually immature or at an epistemic distance uh, in order to preserve our very ability to freely come to know and to love God. Um, do you see that as a kind of plausible response to the kind of question that you're initially raising against this view?
1: I, I don't. Um, I, I don't find it particularly plausible. It's not something I dispute in this in this particular paper. It's just not the focus of the paper. Right. But you know, I, I, I confess to not really understanding why we couldn't still freely choose God even if we were created without epistemic distance. I mean and to understand why, I think we can take ordinary kinds of epistemic claims, right? So like you look at the sky, you go outside, you look at the sky, you see that the sky is blue, right, and you form a basis on the uh, form a belief, sorry, on the basis of of, uh, of that experience. Now i don't think it's appropriate to describe that as saying you choose to believe that the sky is blue right right? it's not a choice you know so long as everything is working the way it should it's unavoidable that you're going to form the belief that the sky is blue but at the same time i think it's odd to describe the formation of that belief as unfree right um so I think a similar kind of thing could be said about epistemic distance. If you're created without epistemic distance from a, from a theistic God, I think probably you would inevitably love him, right? I don't think you'd have a choice in the matter in the sense of being able to do otherwise.
0: Mm.
1: But it seems to me that's just a reflection of your faculties working properly,
0: right? If right, you were to definitely.
1: correctly perceive a, a, an infinitely good and infinitely powerful being, what other response would be reasonable, right? So I think there's a similar kind of issue here to um, discussions that come up in the in the question of free will, um, you know, compatibilism and so on, right? Um, you know, hard determinists and, and libertarians about free will—they um, both recognise that causal determinism, the the idea that every every effect has a cause, um, means that we are inevitably caused to do what we do, right? And as a result of this, hard determinists, they conclude that we don't have free will because they accept causal determinism. And libertarians say, no, no, we're still free after all, but only because causal determinism isn't true, right? We're not always caused to do what we do. There are some completely free decisions that we make. Um, But in the view of, of compatibilists, Framing the question in this way kind of mistakes different senses of the word cause, right? Confuses the idea of something just happening naturally as a matter of cause and effect with the idea that some will is forcing you against your will to do a certain thing, right? Right. And I think Ick is making a similar kind of mistake here, right? So we we would have a natural response to perceiving a being like God, but that's not that's not saying that that God is forcing His will on us that He's forcing that response on us. It's not an imposition on our will. It's just an appropriate response to the experiences that we that we have.
0: Right. So he, you know, I think probably recognizes that he's going to need some kind of additional consideration to justify his claim uh, that God wouldn't, you know, create humans as initially morally perfect. Um, so the the second one he brings to the table. Um, is, the difference, is to note a difference between ready-made and earned virtue. Um, could you kind of de- describe what he means by these concepts and how are they supposed to um, kind of play a role in, in an additional justification for uh, Hick's claim here?
1: Sure. So I think first thing is I, I don't think Hick himself uses those terms, the earned and ready-made. So I use them in my paper. I'm not sure, sure he sure. uses them himself. But the basic idea with them is that Um, I guess there's something valuable, not just about the final result, right? Not just about these these stable dispositions of character that we we call virtue, but also, and I guess maybe primarily, in how that virtue came about in the first place, right? So, um, you know, essentially the idea is this, there's a difference between something that you've earned and something that you've been given. Right, and in this sense, I think, um, you know, Hick would say that God has given us an opportunity that He hasn't made available to angels. For example, you know, angels are created perfectly virtuous, but they didn't do anything themselves to earn that virtue. So Hick thinks that that humans have the capacity to become like angels. Right? I don't think he would want to say that we would become better than angels, you know, because perfection is perfection, right? But he thinks we can make, uh, we can become as good as angels, as virtuous as angels. Hmm. But he would also say that because we've earned that virtue through struggle, there's something special about our virtue that makes it more intrinsically valuable than if we'd just been given it, like like angels have been given it.
0: So he's essentially saying that the, the value of earned uh, virtue is gonna be better than uh, the value of, of, as you say, ready-made virtue. Does, I guess, does he give like an argument for thinking why this would be the case?
1: Uh, not, not to my knowledge, doesn't mean he, he doesn't, but as far as I know, he doesn't. And I think he probably does need to. Um, I don't dispute this premise in, in this paper, and you know, I don't think it's an absolutely silly idea. Uh, but I do think there are problems with it that, that absolutely need to be dealt with. Um, for example, I think we usually—I I think we usually think of the history of a thing as being important only insofar as it leads to the qualities that a thing has in the present, right? right? Um, and I think the natural way to think about earned virtue is along similar lines, right? so the idea would be because of the history of earned virtue it's a little bit different than ready-made virtue after it's developed right it's in some sense better it's maybe more robust than ready-made virtue so for example you know we might imagine that you know perfectly good angels who have ready-made virtue maybe they might still have the potential to sin because of the quality of their their ready-made virtue. But by contrast, perfectly good humans, humans who had earned their their perfect virtue through struggle, maybe because of that history, would, would never, uh, you know, the, the possibility of sin is no longer on the table, right? And the, the idea would be, this is because earned virtue was just a, a better kind of virtue. Um, but the problem here, I think, is that if earned virtue is qualitatively better, if it's better because of the qualities that it possesses, it doesn't seem to be any reason why an omnipotent God couldn't directly create those qualities in a being. Mm-hmm. So it's just not clear why God couldn't create angels with earned virtue just by creating the particular qualities that are required. Um, and if God could create angels, um, with earned virtue, then God could have created humans with earned virtue. And if so, why, why didn't He do that? Well, you know, why do we have to experience all of the suffering to get that earned virtue the hard way when we could have got it from the start and we wouldn't have had to have these evils in our lives to begin with? Right. Um, yeah. So I think the other alternative, though, is that the process of earning virtue matters in some way that doesn't get reflected in the ultimate qualities of that virtue but i i personally i'm just not totally sure how to make sense of that idea
0: as you mentioned you know you kind of grant this uh, assumption uh, for the sake of argument um, your paper then goes on to argue that um, ultimately hick is aimed at the moral progress of humankind um, but when we explore what that could mean uh, things get a little bit ambiguous because there are different ways to understand the concept of, of progress or of advancement. Um, could you kind of make that distinction for us?
1: Sure, yeah. So I think, I think this distinction is relatively straightforward. Um, basically, I think we can understand progress in a more experiential kind of way, right? So in an advanced society, a society that's progressed, is happier or it's healthier or you know, people's lives are better in some kind of way, or we could understand progress in, I think, a more character-focused way, right? So a society that's more advanced, that's progressed, is a society with more virtuous people in it. Maybe the, the average level of virtue in that society is higher than a less advanced society.
0: So if, if Hick adopts that first view, um, intuitively, this would seem to be you know, rather plausible. Um, however, you argue that this uh, potentially has an awkward fit uh, for Hick in his, his theodicy here. Could you kind of explain what you mean by that?
1: Sure. Yeah. I think I think this is probably the the least best option for soul making theorists, um, because you know, put simply, Hick argues that we need suffering and we need evil in order to have the opportunity to develop our virtues. Right. Now, if we eliminate suffering. If if everyone's happy, if everyone's healthy, then where's the opportunity to develop our virtue, right? So Higgs seems to be committed to the view that we shouldn't try to eliminate suffering. We shouldn't try to make society happier and healthier. And to me, at least, that seems like a very odd position to take.
0: I mean, couldn't he object, though, that, um, you know, no matter how much we progress in our virtue, uh, that there's always going to be some suffering there to continue our soul building essentially. Couldn't that be a response that he could go with here?
1: Yeah, he could. And he may be right, but I, I, I still think there are problems. Um, so for example, let's imagine that our society, you know, somewhat implausibly, but let's imagine that our society has the, the perfect distribution and the perfect amount of suffering to advance this soul making project, the development of our virtue. Well, you know, we're not the only society that exists right now, and we're not the only society that's existed throughout history, right? So some societies, uh, both now right and in the past, contain or contained more suffering than, than ours does. But if we're imagining that our society is ideal, right, if it has all the suffering it needs, but no more than it needs, by implication, those other societies have or had more suffering than they needed, right? And that means that that suffering is gratuitous suffering. And Hick cannot accept gratuitous suffering, right? Suffering can only, or evil, can only be justified in Hick's view if it actually serves a purpose, right? And in these other societies, it doesn't serve a purpose because it's more than is required to achieve these these particular goals that, they, you know, that they're supposed to justify. it, We don't need, you know, it doesn't help to develop people's souls, to develop people's characters. It's more, it's too much. Um, similarly, we could say, look, if there's a, some kind of future society that has less suffering, right, but still has enough suffering that we can develop our, our virtues appropriately, then how do we explain the kind of excess gratuitous suffering that we face in the present, right? If, if all we need to develop our virtues is kind of relatively benign interpersonal conflicts, and you know, presumably a future society, even a really advanced one, is going to have interpersonal conflicts, um, sure. But why, then why would God permit genocide or you know, disease or war in the present? Right? There doesn't seem to be any good reason to allow those things now. Now, of course, we you know we may still have natural evils. So we might have earthquakes and floods and storms and and disease and things like that, right? But you know, either these natural evils are necessary for soul making, or they're not necessary for soul making. And if they're not necessary, then Again it's the same question right why would a perfectly good perfectly powerful god allow these natural evils to exist right you know for a for an omnipotent being creating a world without earthquakes would not be a challenge right it would be very simple to do on the other hand if these natural evils are necessary for our soul making then we actually ought not to try to put a stop to them so for example If we invented a machine that could absorb the full force of of earthquakes as they happen, right? So that nothing is damaged, no one gets hurt, and you know, assuming that there are no undesirable secondary effects, right? Then presumably a soul-making theodicist would be committed to the view that we ought not use such a machine. Because in doing so, we're removing an essential opportunity uh, to allow people to, to grow. Morally, to grow as as people, to de- to you know develop their souls, and to me that just seems bizarre. The idea that you know if we had a machine to, to to stop people dying from earthquakes, we should choose not to use it for the benefits of our souls. I mean, it just seems very very strange. Um, same kind of thing with medical technology, right? If we worked out how to eliminate disease completely, a soul-making theodicist might be forced to have to say, well, sorry, we can't do that. We have to allow disease to continue to exist. We need it for soul making. I I just find that idea very, very strange.
0: So I guess, you know, alternatively, he could reject that view um, in favor of a view that is about increasing the amount of virtue, right? Rather than merely reducing or yeah, reducing the amount of suffering. So um, how would you kind of respond if, if that's the kind of way he would be going?
1: Well, I think first we'd need to we'd need to work out exactly how that happens. What's the mechanism? And I, I guess by mechanism, I don't mean like the really concrete practical mechanism in, in society, but kind of what's the relationship between the social structures and the increased level of virtue. Right. Uh, it seems to me there are kind of two ways that this might this might happen um, the first is that people who are born into a more advanced society kind of start off more virtuous um, and that's that's what I refer to as the better start view uh, the second is that people born into that society are able to develop their virtue more quickly and more easily um, and I call that the better Faster progress view. So I think really the response that I would offer to Hick depends on which of these two views he thinks is the right one.
0: Okay, sure, sure. So let's, you know, let's say that uh, Hick adopts that first one, the better start view. Um, what would kind of follow from that?
1: Well, first, first off, I'd say I actually I'm, I don't think the better view, uh, the better start view, makes all that much sense independently of of this discussion here. Hmm. Uh, because I'm not really sure what it would mean in practice for people in the society to have a better start. right? Would it mean that babies are born more virtuous somehow? right? Like How, how would that work? I'm just not sure how to cash this view out in practice. right? right. Uh, but putting putting that worry aside, um, in the context of the soul-making theodicy, there's an additional problem, um, which is that this uh, mechanism seems to reduce the opportunity we would have to develop our own virtue right Um, because whatever virtue we start with is not earned virtue it's ready-made virtue and this whole theodicy is focused on saying look um earned virtue is what matters all the suffering is justified so that you can get that earned virtue um but if we you know if we all start better off that reduces the opportunity we have to earn virtue ourselves we we have it ready made and i would think then it kind of undermines the purpose of the whole the whole theodicy it makes us worse off in the long run to have a better start if earned virtue is what matters
0: so then what if you were to go with the kind of faster progress view
1: yeah i think this view you know practically speaking makes a lot more sense to me um yeah. and the idea here is just that society is structured in such a way as to encourage people to develop their virtues more easily and to develop them more quickly, right? Um, I also think this is probably the the path that a, a soul-making theologist should take if they want to defend their view against against my argument here. I think it's the most plausible um, sort of response. Um, but I, I, you know, my worry here is that I think this still has the potential to put moral advancement and the kind of more experiential account of social progress, so happiness and so on, quite sharply at odds, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so in other words, if it turns out that the way of achieving faster moral progress is to increase the amount of suffering to, you know, give people more opportunities to, um, to uh, develop their virtue, a soul-making theologist would have to say, all right, great, let's go with that. Right. Right, which I think is again a little bit a little bit odd. Now I don't think this is a, a, a knockdown argument here um, against the soul-making theodicy, but if this approach does commit us to opposing, um, you know, social progress, and I think the more practical everyday sense of reducing suffering, which I think is probably people's common sense idea of social progress. Um, then I think that's kind of a, a mark against the plausibility of the of the soul-making view.
0: Okay, so at this point, it appears as though you know advocates of the soul-making theodicy really do seem to be, in a sense, committed to opposing social progress in this way. Um, that's obviously pretty counterintuitive. Um, you know, though you've considered that, you know, there might be some additional objections. So one objection might be that, uh, you know, it is acceptable to be in a world with no excess undeserved evil if that world is the result of human activity, but not if it's the result of like God's actual actions.
1: Yeah, I mean, I just can't see why it makes a difference, right, you know, what matters to Hick about a world with no undeserved suffering is that in that world, we would no longer have a reason to fight evil, right? And I think, that's true regardless of whether that world was brought about by god or by human beings right there's there's no obvious difference between the two um so if god ought not to do it we ought not to do it as well um and what's more i think you know soul making is about trying to become more like god and if that doesn't involve you know making the same decisions god would make under the same circumstances then what what could that possibly involve um, so, you know, I think this sort of commits us to a view in which God's goodness and our ideal goodness are actually not the same thing. They're separate from each other in some kind of way. Um, and I'm, not, I'm, I'm just not generally a fan of of views that that see God's goodness and our ideal goodness as being unrelated. I think it leads to a lot of problems.
0: Um, another uh, objection you consider. Uh, is uh, you know even if such a society is ultimately undesirable, we nevertheless ought to act to bring it about, uh, since moral growth consists precisely in our trying to eliminate the evil and suffering of others.
1: Yeah, I mean I think this view is basically, or this this objection is basically saying, hey, we ought to actively try to make the world worse. Right. 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 We know that eliminating gratuitous suffering and evil takes away the possibility of soul-making. And soul-making is the the, the the valuable thing that supposedly justifies all of this, right? Right. It's the whole point. So what kind of moral person would consciously choose with, with full knowledge of the consequences to eliminate the possibility of future people developing their virtue, right? Like, I cannot see how that could possibly be the moral choice. How could we develop our own virtue if we are consciously choosing to make the world worse for future people in the sense of taking away their opportunity to develop their souls,
0: um, I guess a, th- a third objection you raise here uh, you say, you know, social progress is perfectly acceptable since natural evil is enough and is randomly distributed enough uh, to leave us with a world with real opportunities for moral development is natural evil enough or does that sound convincing i guess
1: yeah i think again i think i don't think this this objection works for soul making theonists and and it's sort of related to what i what i said earlier because this view this this objection commits us to not eliminating natural evils where that becomes feasible mm-hmm. right so if we had the choice to eliminate disease if our response to that ought to be, oh, no, you know, we best not do that. People need illness so they can develop morally. I just Mm -hmm. think that's a a very strange position for someone to take, right? I think, you know, if you're concerned with suffering and you're concerned with developing virtues that um, are concerned with the suffering of others, then to be saying I'm, you know, I'm perfectly happy for other people to suffer with disease or suffer through, you know, hurricanes or suffer from earthquakes or whatever, Mm -hmm. uh, because you know it's for their own good. I don't know. I just find that very odd.
0: If you appreciate the content and tone of what Real A Theology has to offer, please consider writing a review on iTunes or sharing an episode on social media. We also have a Patreon to which you can make a small recurring donation per episode in support of the show. Music is from the Chicago based band Casserole. We would also like to thank our patrons Aiden Armstrong, Jason, Robin Willems, Ed Atkinson, Kashi Samaro Rira, Kim Bushkovsky, Anthony Lawson, Jeffrey Rubinoff, Brandon McCleary. My name is Justin Schieber, and yes, I'm back.